It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of two girls. In this episode, we'll be adding two new expert voices to the conversation around the Delphi murders. We recently spoke to two men who each bring a different skill set to the table. One is a gun expert who has testified at trials before. He'll be weighing in on the bullet evidence from the perspective of a former firearms salesman. The other is a forensic examiner who will talk about some of the science behind the evidence. As we've said before, we'll be drawing on the expertise of a wide variety of different people, including attorneys, firearm experts, and individuals with law enforcement expertise. Some of these people may prefer to remain anonymous. In those cases, please rest assured that we are verifying their identity and their level of expertise before airing their comments. In some instances, the experts may disagree, signifying a more contested subject. In other areas, we may get a bit of a consensus going. Either way, we want everyone who cares deeply about the Delphi case to get the benefit of these insights. We want you to be more informed about the issues, as many of these topics may not be apparent to anyone outside of these fields. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, 
and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is The Delphi Murders, conversations with a firearms expert and a forensic examiner. First, we'll run our talk with Raul Nieves. He's a Navy veteran with a background in engineering and working with metals. He's also worked in firearm sales and has testified for the prosecution in criminal cases involving firearms. He was kind enough to write us up a brief report on the bullet evidence in the Delphi case. We'll be getting more of his thoughts on the evidence included in the probable cause affidavit in the following conversation. Tell us more about the Sig Sauer P226 mm-hmm. for folks who are not um, aware of, you know, what that sort of model represents or how it's viewed. Sure, sure. Um, the Sig Sauer P226 is a it's a celebrated model in the Sig Sauer um, lineup of firearms. Um, like any manufacturer, there are many models and many sub models of whatever it is they manufacture. In the case of firearms. Um, the P226 has been around for a long time and continues to be one of their highest selling um, items. It is a firearm that is intended for someone with um, the ability to hold a full-size firearm. That's to say that it's uh, a heavier firearm as far as firearms go when looking at uh, the differences in weight of uh, between uh, other items on the market. Uh, a polymer-framed firearm will weigh much less than a steel-framed firearm. So I would say that anyone who's looking to purchase a, a P226 is looking at um, a bigger frame person, a bigger framed hand. Um, I can tell you that from experience owning a P226, it fits large in my hand. Um, I'm not the biggest person, but it is a gun that I need to make sure that I'm gripping correctly in order to maintain control even in a, a moderate caliber like 9mm. When looking at price ranges or the kind of person that would choose a Sig Sauer in general, you're not looking at someone who's looking for a budget firearm or just something to get in practice. I, I, I would say that Sig Sauer is on a higher tier of, of quality manufacturing tolerances, uh, their uh, quality assurance is great, and their return policy and warranties are fantastic. But their price reflects those points. So, so it's not like someone would buy one of these just to toss around and plink at the range. The P226 is available in several calibers, all of them in in larger capacities. I would say at least more than ten, if memory serves correctly, uh, rounds per magazine. I would say that, that that because of Sig Sauer's ability to dress up the individual models, that uh, there's usually a Sig Sauer model sub-tier that will appeal to most people. If not, I'm sure that you know everyone can find something that they would like in their lineup. Yeah, that's that's what I could gather from you know just my experience having sold so many of them. It sort of sounds, and, and tell me if this is the wrong impression i'm getting it sort of sounds like it's not necessarily like a beginner gun because it is more expensive and more high quality yeah definitely it's definitely for someone who's either going to have it as a as a as a point of of regard meaning that meaning to say you know they might carry something daily or they might go to the range with one thing but you know when it comes to bragging rights 
someone might say, hey, I have a two P two two six at home. You know, it's a it's a safe queen is you know basically saying that it doesn't leave the the house or the safe uh, very very often. But um, absolutely, it's it, it's not like for someone who didn't know what they were doing. One thing you mentioned uh, is is the regarding um, the the double action slash single action trigger mechanism. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a bit about you know what those terms mean in terms of firearms, and then kind of how that pertains to this case? Sure, um, absolutely. Um, so within the school of thought of firearms uh, carrying, the carrying with a round around in the chamber, or you know the the ideal idea uh, the ideality of the uh, term of cock locked and loaded, or, or even just the other side of the coin where people want to carry uh, with the chamber empty, depending on the firearm that you choose, it may vary your um, your desire to, to carry with a round in the chamber or not. Now, the way this relates to double action, single action, is that in the case of the P226, if it was carried at any point before an incident or its or its use without a round in the chamber, then the action will have had to have been cycled twice by hand to eject an unspent round. And that doesn't seem fluid or, or logical in the sense of why someone would have to feel that they, that they would need to pull the action. Um, the action of the firearm would that would strip a round from the magazine and load it into the firing chamber. If it was being carried without a round in the chamber, then you would only have to do that once to then make it a functional firing firearm. Um, why it would have been done twice is illogical to me. So my argument is that it was already being carried with a round in the chamber and that the action was cycled by hand probably to draw attention to the sound of it. If the individual carrying the firearm cycled the, cycled the action and a uh, unspent round ejected, that's all that they would have needed to do to, I would say, draw attention or control to, to you know, having two individuals there in this case, I would say that it doesn't make sense that it wasn't already chambered when it was carried to where it was presumably of use to the assailant. Right. And and when you when you mentioned kind of the the idea of, you know, why would somebody do this? Um, is it mm-hmm. is it are you thinking kind of an element of control kind of would it make a certain sound that might, you know, kind of the action of a, yeah the action of a firearm is distinctive and ultimately you know uh, thinking in terms of the situation at hand where there are two victims and prospectively one or more people uh, if, if the firearm's action was cycled and a unspent round was ejected that really wouldn't do more than just make noise. It, it wouldn't fire the firearm. It wouldn't serve a purpose to the person wielding the firearm, other than to draw attention to the firearm. Right, and and then and thus perhaps be a, a mes- method of control. Um, you know, if mm-hmm. I have basically saying without saying it, I have a gun, and you mm-hmm. know, I'm prepared I'm to, to use it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of um, one thing that we've gotten so many questions about, and uh, I'm very curious about your experience and your sort of thoughts on this are, you know, basically tying a bullet to a specific gun via ejection marks. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? And sort of how are you looking at the, I think we've heard it referred to as ballistics and also tool mark identification Mm -hmm. marks. Right. So um, I think that traditionally when the layperson um, thinks of what kind of analysis would be presented uh, for for uh, ballistics purposes, they would consider the retrieval of a spent round, uh, a piece of lead, uh, a copper jacketed lead from some place, and then having it compared to um, 
another round that was then fired from a suspected firearm. In this case, there's an intact round that has once lived in within the mechanism of this specific firearm, even if several of this same specific firearm produced similar marks because of the quality that these firearms are held to, I, I would venture to say that their, their, their marks would be distinctive and repeatable over time. That being said, if you could replicate or, or examine the marks coming from any one particular firearm to other rounds coming from that particular firearm, you would see that the marks were one and the same reflective to how long deep or uh, pronounced they might be as they, uh, you know, process through the cycle of the firearm. Right. And, and in one thing, in one um, element of your report, you mentioned the issue of subjectivity as it comes up in the mm-hmm. PCA. And can you speak mm-hmm. to that? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, a, a, a round, in this case, 40 caliber, we're not talking about an item that's a dinosaur fossil or something like that, where it's distinctive and, its life shows its experience. In in this case, we're showing that this round wasn't spent, but did live someplace. So, so the analysis that's done when you have these marks that you're looking to examine, um, the marks aren't just, and in this case, not marks from having been fired, but having been from the round as it stands with a, you know, casing, a primer, and a, uh, a bullet, and its powder charge, living within the magazine. Every step of the process where the round is introduced to the firearms mechanism leaves an, an identifying mark. The lips, um, the top portion of the magazine where the round is stripped from at, as it lives inside the firearm are metal. Um, even, even with a polymer, even with a polymer firearm or a polymer magazine, a lot of times those lips are still metal. They slide because of the nature of brass being a softer metal than the steel magazine across the lip and leave marks as they are introduced into the firing chamber. The introduction of the firing chamber leaves marks, the extraction leaves marks, and the ejection leaves marks. Having said that, even if they couldn't compare this to be any different from any other P226, I would venture to question how many P226s are in question with regard to being found or in relation to this case. Right. And and it kind of to go back to what you were saying earlier, it sounds like, you know, it's not a rare weapon, but it's also not your everyday weapon, perhaps. Correct. I think the, uh, the analogy I, li- I like to use was um, someone would choose a Camry and it would serve them very well. But if you could afford a Lexus, that's where this kind of falls in. And that those little sprills and finishes of extra uh, here and there, you know, as far as you know, choosing one manufacturer over the other. And in terms of, what you know, I, I'm just looking at the latter part of your report, and mm-hmm. it gets into the visual tool mark analysis. Mm-hmm. And can you talk to us a bit about that? Sure. Um, so it's subjective in the nature that they, that the marks are being looked at under uh, under microscope, under enhancement, and um, usually uh, prosecutors or, or defense will, will will argue enhancement for or against their case um, because there's the you know possibility that uh, results could have been skewed when things are enhanced. The the type of analysis that's done isn't held to a measurable scrutiny where one can say, you know, this di- distinctive line was measured at 4.5 millimeters above a line that was measured by 2.5 millimeters. It, the, the, the denominations are so minute that even measuring in millimeters is is is, uh, is like throwing a baseball into a ballpark. Um you, you would probably need to have, and most departments in most localities don't have accesses 
to something like uh, an electron scanning microscope where the surfaces of these materials would be scanned and then the average depths would be, you know, measured and 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 and, and evaluated for for cruelty. Um that's that's as far as anyone in in you know, as far as we stand in scientific you know, analysis could go to measure the differences between any one thing or another when it comes to having left marks distinguishable in a firearm. And most places don't have that kind of machinery available to them. So we, we're, we're, stuck, we're, we're stuck with, unfortunately, being scientific when being subjective, although those two things kind of, you know, compete. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess, you know, in terms of in terms of your overall experience, when you're reading this, when you're reading through the probable cause affidavit on what bullet evidence they say they have so far, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, how, what's, you know, just based on the limited information we all have, do you feel like Mm -hmm. it sounds like they have something pretty strong in terms of evidentiary quality? Or is this something that you would be, you know, hoping they might have a little bit more than just that? In my mind, they've probably... If all we're being told is that an unfired round was tied to a firearm, they probably have more than one way to tell that there's that this that this ejected round is related to you know the person in question. Um, even even to say that you know they served warrants, I, I imagine at this person's home, I'm, they could have found more of the same ammunition. Um, that was distinctive in any other way because there are also, you know, specialty ammunitions. You could have bought uh, something, some, some type of fancy round that, you know, looks pretty when, you know, when it's not in the box. It could be any one, any one of those two, any one of those things that tie uh, this round to this individual. This has all been very interesting and very helpful. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Is there anything okay. we didn't ask you that you feel it's important for people or, to be yeah, aware of? Or anything that you didn't put in the report that you think, you know, people um, should know? I think that the, that there's definitely uh, a lot to be said and um, a lot of time has passed. And, and, and I think that with that being said, um, hopefully we're, we're just doing, uh, doing Abby and Libby some doing, doing right by them. That's, that's hopefully, hopefully what we're doing here. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's what, that's what everybody who's been following this case certainly wants that, you know, it'll be a, you know, at some point, some, you know, people who did this or the person who did this will be held accountable and, you know, you know, exposed and also convicted. Absolutely. You know, I've got a little girl and true, true crime though. It, it is a bit of a morbid subject. Um, when, when it, when it hits home, you, you see things that you have to hold, uh, hold, Hold most fear, and you have to try to contribute. So that's ultimately my uh, motivation for trying to contribute here. We'll be back in a moment with our second interview. In the meantime, let's hear a moment from our terrific sponsors. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. 
This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year. In conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes, BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's R-O dot C-O slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The next expert in this episode will remain anonymous as he is a practicing forensic examiner in a state that is not Indiana. We have verified his identity and work records independently. In order to disguise his voice, we transcribed the interview. I will be reading his quotes. The reason we are keeping his name out of this is because we do not want him to land in professional hot water for speaking with journalists. I want to get your thoughts in general on some of the information that's been publicly released in the Delphi case so far. Given your expertise, how are you looking at this? What are you seeing? So, this case is very intriguing. Some of the evidence they have used to apprehend Mr. Allen is intriguing, to say the least. So, let's go with the bullet in general or the cartridge that they found at the scene. The examiner that did the examination on the firearm, along with a comparison to the extractor marks, from what I read, based off all of the test methods that he used, this is very common in the forensics community. So it's nothing that is out of the ordinary per se. In regards to the marks that he was identified on, it's not something that's unheard of. What the examiner is saying is that that cartridge, in his or her opinion, was in that firearm and extracted and ejected out without any firing. Let's put that into layman's terms. All comparative disciplines were basically looking for individuality marks or individual characteristics, right? We have two sets. We have class characteristics along with individual characteristics. Your class characteristics are your typical manufactured items or or features on the firearm, the tool period where a group of those firearms, those tools, will share those characteristics. So let's say at a screwdriver factory, we have all flathead screwdrivers, right? That's a class characteristic. But if you look at one flathead screwdriver on a microscopic level, we're talking one, two, three, four times magnification. Whenever tools are manufactured, believe it or not, by other tools... Well, the theory of firearm and tool mark identification is that one tool will impart its characteristic onto the other tool. And depending on which one is softer, one will retain the characteristics of the other. So, if we have like a stainless steel tool and a brass tool brass, the metal brass is going to be softer than steel. So, the, uh, the characteristics on the steel is going to mark upon that softer object. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense. Okay, so what the examiner has come across is that, well, whenever a cartridge is loaded into a firearm, it goes from the magazine, and then the slide will push that cartridge into the chamber. Typically, well, pull the trigger, it ignites the powder, the powder produces a gas, it then expels the bullet out of the firearm. But in this case, it appears that the cartridge was chambered and then was ejected from the firearm without being fired. In this case, this is a semi-automatic six-hour. 
That's a semi-automatic pistol. It contains a frame. And then the slide. The slide on the very top of the firearm is what goes backwards whenever it's fired due to the energy. And when it goes backwards, in turn, there's something called the extractor. You can think of it almost as like a claw. So that claw grabs the rim of the cartridge. Now, when it grabs the rim of the cartridge, it takes a grip and it pulls it out of the chamber. When it pulls it out of the chamber, there's another piece of metal that's within that firing mechanism, which is the ejector. Usually, the ejector hits the head stamp or where the writing is on the cartridge. The ejector hits that and then ejects it from the gun, okay? So the theory of what happened is the components that are in the SIG, and in most all guns, are steel. As for the cartridge, it could be a brass cartridge. It can be, you know, all kinds of metals. But your most popular are going to be brass or nickel-based materials. They are softer than the extractor. So the extractor grabs that rim. It's an aggressive process of it grabbing that cartridge. So in turn, it's producing marks on that cartridge. When it comes to the lab with a firearm, we do numerous tests, function tests, and etc. One of them would be to extract, and then we go under magnification, and we'll compare what we saw at the crime scene to what we use for test firing or ejecting and extracting in this case. And we'll compare those marks. And whenever you're looking at these marks under magnification, they're basically numerous different irregular shapes along with striations. And we're looking at those features and their agreement to one another in order to render an opinion. Listening to the podcast, Kevin was speaking of the subjectivity of the nature of this case. Well, what the examiner is seeing, there's no subjectivity about that. So the shapes that he's seeing, the striations that he's seeing, the agreement that he's seeing, that's all objective. That's all there. If he was to blow that up, even potentially a layperson would be able to see that. Okay, these things look the same, especially when they're lined up. The subjectivity comes in regarding the weight of significance or the amount of information that is in correspondence to render that opinion. So in this case, he identified saying that the cartridge was extracted from that firearm, therefore meaning that there were significant amounts of correspondence in those individual characteristics that we spoke of for him to render opinion that that cartridge was extracted at one point out of Mr. Allen's firearm. That's very helpful. I guess one area that we're trying to figure out, and I feel like we've kind of gotten some information on one side and then some information on the other side, is are they able to exclude other Sig Sauer P226s through this process in your view? I guess what we're trying to figure out is how strong the evidence is regarding the bullet evidence. I got you. Ideally, we would look for more information. There's something called chambering marks. Whenever the cartridge goes into the chamber of the firearm, the chamber will scratch the sides of that cartridge. Those are also unique as well. But whenever we come to saying, could another firearm produce those same marks, well, we aren't able to examine all firearms in the world, right? That's kind of obvious. But based off of the training, the experience, and the history of the discipline, usually the examiner would testify to say, They would never say to the exclusion of all others or anything like that. They would normally say, in my opinion, I have never come across two firearms sharing identical individual characteristics. So it's kind of a roundabout way of saying, yeah, this is the gun, but I just can't tell you it's scientific certainty. We've all heard that when a fired round goes through the barrel of a gun, there's lots of differentiation. But do you often see ejector marks being looked at in court? Here I wanted to point out that I goofed in phrasing this question. The expert kindly noted that the PCA talked about extraction marks on the unspent round, not ejection marks. As he described earlier, those are two different things. The forensic examiner said that for an unfired cartridge, extractor marks and chamber marks tend to be more important. My brain just seemed to have some trouble differentiating between gun-related words starting with E. The forensic examiner went on to address both extraction and ejection marks, and other marks that can come into play in these types of investigations. Yeah, 
At the end of the day, both ejection and extraction marks are viewed in a similar way. It's the same concept. The harder material is going to leave its mark on the softer material. When those are compared microscopically, whether it be an ejector mark, an extractor mark, the breech face marks, which is what occurs whenever the gun is fired and the cartridge case pushes against the metal in the back of the firearm, it's still all the same. It all comes to the same concept of the harder material marking the softer material. You're going to even have marks from the magazine, since it's a semi-automatic pistol, it's fed via the magazine. That magazine will impart marks as well. For the extractor, you asked, could another SIG produce those marks? Like I said before, it's going to be in the opinion of that examiner examining it. Is it possible that in addition to extraction marks, the forensic examiners in the Delphi case could use ejection marks, breech face marks, and magazine marks? A hundred percent. All of those could be present. That's an ideal situation if all of those features are there. More often than not, that's, that's not the case. But we don't know for this case in particular. Yeah, we definitely don't know. But you're saying that in most cases, there wouldn't be all of the above necessarily. Yeah. They may have all the marks, but the marks may not be good enough to form that identification opinion. We understand that defense attorneys are calling into question more tool mark identification methods in recent times. Given your experience in the courtroom, is that something you're seeing as well? Or is that something that's kind of par for the course and that tool mark identification methods tend to still be pretty accepted? Well, I would say yes and yes. The United States government released two documents, the NAS report and the PCAST report. Both of these were conducted by agencies in academia. They did target certain disciplines, one being bite marks, one being footwear and tire, and one being firearms. So the PCAST report references a 2016 report that was a report to then-President Barack Obama. It was titled Forensic Science in Criminal Courts, Ensuring Scientific Validity of Feature Comparison Methods. And that came from the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. The other report, the NAS report, was from the National Academy of Sciences, and that came out in the same subject in 2009. Basically, what they said is, it's not reliable enough to individualize. And that's really a very broad explanation of what they're saying. Defense attorneys have latched onto that. So a lot of times they're trying to get forensic evidence, especially from your comparative disciplines, to be thrown out. That's an ideal situation for the defense attorneys. At least in my state, there has not yet been in any of the comparative disciplines that I'm aware of any that that science has been thrown out. And this has been going on for quite a while. So the PCAST is no longer relevant now because an organization was formed called the OSAC. That's the Organization of Scientific Area Committees. It is under the National Institute of Standards and Technology. That's basically a governing body that has the job of standardizing the practices of forensic science throughout the entire community. A lot of labs, especially the big labs, labs like that of the Indiana State Police, I would expect them to be following those OSAC guidelines, or at least minimally following those guidelines. The guidelines that they come up with are not something that's completely out of the blue here. It's things that we've always practiced. But from those studies, we realized that there were people who were testifying as quote-unquote experts without the significant training that's required to be a forensic examiner. Their agency sends them out to do a 40-hour course on firearm and tool mark examination. When they come back with their certificate, sometimes that agency will deem oh, you're now an expert. Start doing these things. Start doing that type of analysis. In bigger accredited laboratories, for instance, there is significantly more training and a significant amount of review processes that are done also to verify that the information that the author examiner has written is actually accurate. There's a verification process, and that verification process is when another qualified examiner will review the case independently to see if they render that same opinion. I'm going to go with my gut feeling. ISP is a pretty big agency. 
And I would assume they have a similar policy where someone does do an independent verification of the analysis that was originally done. And then there was an agreement that, yes, it was cycled through this firearm. And then the report is written. One thing that's come up is the possibility that the case could turn into dueling experts. In your experience, how does that tend to go? It's likely, very likely, considering how high profile this case is. We see this all the time. They will hire an independent expert. That independent expert may not necessarily disagree with the opinion, but their job is to find some of the holes. More often than not, nothing comes out of it. The judge will allow both experts to go on. The defense will try to poke holes with their expert. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it is somewhat unethical for a defense attorney to hire an expert and have them testify completely false information. Instead, they will still render maybe the same opinion, but they will say something along the lines of, uh, for instance, it wasn't test-fired in X kind of way at this laboratory. Well, that may be because of the restrictions of this laboratory. Or they say it sat in the evidence vault for a period of time. The humidity was high, therefore producing marks that are inconsistent. There's holes to be poked. But we have to understand in the forensic world, even though we're typically associated with a police agency, our job is not to prosecute. Our job is not to convict. It's none of that. The basis of forensic science in general is to have an unbiased opinion. We work for both sides. I've worked for the defense. I more often work for the state, but it's not unheard of to work for the defense as well. You have to pride yourself on being unbiased because we do not want to put someone in jail wrongly, and we also don't want to keep someone out of jail wrongly. Naturally. So we try to distance ourselves from that investigative purpose so it does not cause a bias on our exam. When you start introducing biases, that's when things get a little hairy. When you're looking over the PCA and what's been released so far, are you surprised that there isn't more forensics mentioned in there? Are you surprised that there isn't more forensics announced yet? Or is that just something that tends to be like they put out one thing in their PCA and then hold the rest for trial? I guess, what's sort of your experience with that? That's pretty much the experience. They will put in just enough to give that probable cause. I will not be surprised if there's significantly more forensic analysis done in all sorts of disciplines. That bullet could have touched DNA, which may bring back someone completely different than Mr. Allen. But then there's an explanation of, why is this bullet here if you weren't even around? But in my experience, they're put what they need for the probable cause. And I think what they have for the probable cause of that firearm analysis is pretty damning. It's not necessarily saying Mr. Allen is guilty. It's just saying there's enough information here that we need to make sure he's not a flight risk. That we need to detain him and keep him put until we finish the investigation. Is there anything we didn't ask you about that you feel our audience needs to know? Or any misinformation you've seen out there that you want to talk about? I think one of the things that provoked my email to you was the thought of it being, It wasn't you guys, but the thought of it being labeled a phony science. And it's like, oh, that hurts my heart. This goes back many, many, many years. Calvin Goddard was the godfather of firearms examination. That goes back to the old days of fully automatic Tommy guns, the Valentine's Day massacre, things like that. This is how far back it goes. It's been relevant and accepted and admissible since then. Calvin Hooker Goddard is an important name for true crime fans to know about. He was a forensic scientist who essentially helped professionalize the realm of forensic ballistics. He edited a publication called the American Journal of Police Science. It was so influential that FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover became a contributor. One of his most famous cases was the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which involved the grisly murder of seven Chicago gangsters. He also tested evidence on behalf of supporters of Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, two anarchists convicted of murdering a security guard, Alessandro Berardelli, and a paymaster, Frederick Parmenter. 
during a robbery in 1920. His ultimate conclusions supported their guilt. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. In forensics, we're 100% open to critique. All we want to do is get better. And the only way you're going to get better is if people start to question things. That's why we developed the OSIC to make sure that everyone has good training and everyone's somewhat following the same protocol. So you don't have these unqualified experts testifying and the jury weighing their opinions based off that. I think a lot of the errors in forensic science, well, I don't think. There's many black box studies that say forensic examiners err on the side of caution more often than not. So usually we have more false negatives than we do false positives. The false positive is under a percentage point. Typically, all around. Is that nationwide? I'm just trying to contextualize that stat. I don't know if it was nationwide or worldwide, but it was a large black box study that was conducted in the footwear discipline. But like I said, these are all pattern disciplines. The false negatives are far more common. Where it gets a little gray and far more subjective is whenever it's in the gray area. So the conclusion scale is a little broad whenever an examiner is trying to render an opinion based off of the information that they receive from the evidence, the empirical information. And whenever it's not enough to eliminate the tool and it's not enough information to identify the tool, where now we are in a full-blown range of inconclusive. It might be enough to say, well, it's more than likely this gun, but I can't say for certain. I'm putting it very, very much in layman's terms, along with, This doesn't really look the same, but it's not enough to absolutely, conclusively say that it's not this tool. A lot of your subjectivity is in that gray area. But at the end of the day, it's inconclusive for a reason. That whole gray area is inconclusive. So you would expect the subjectivity to be all over the place there. And I think it's important for both defense and state attorneys to make sure that they're aware of that. Because there have been times where I'm in court and it's an inconclusive, but yet they make it sound like it's gold. It's just circumstantial. What are the odds? But at the end of the day, that's the jury's decision about how strong that is. But the attorney can make it seem stronger than what it really is. One aspect of this that we've heard about that I did want to run by you is the idea that with this model of gun and with the kind of mechanisms involved the extractor and the ejector parts can kind of be swapped out basically or can kind of be put into other guns. Would that complicate being able to identify a gun? There's a lot of parts of the firearm that can be replaced when it's broken or things like that. But could someone in theory remove that extractor and put it into another Sig Sauer? Sure. The likelihood of that? It's pretty, pretty nil. That case was 2017 
and then they examined that in October, and he was able to identify that, that's pretty damning. Because if we go with the theory of taking the extractor out and putting in another gun, that would mean that Joe Schmo went down there, ejected a cartridge, and he knew of Mr. Allen. He borrowed Mr. Allen's gun. He put that into his gun, and then it stayed dormant for five years. Right. And if that happened, then why wouldn't Richard Allen say, hey, that guy borrowed my gun? Right. Uh, I took this gun into the gunsmith to repair it, and it was a used part. Well, that would explain a lot, right? But we would expect to see some sort of paperwork, invoice, things like that, that would say that. But the likelihood is pretty nil. We get that all the time. It's like, oh, we can exchange the barrel, and then the barrel will be different. The likelihood of a criminal to have the means and the wherewithal to do that is pretty nil. We want to thank Raul and the forensic examiner for sharing their insights with us. As a reminder, we'll be continuing to bring on more experts with all sorts of relevant backgrounds to talk about this case. You'll likely find that some of the experts disagree on certain points, and that some may share opinions that clash with one another. Some will have concerns about some of the evidence mentioned in the probable cause affidavit. Others will tell us that it's strong and shaping up to be a solid case. In our view, that's all okay. Disagreement and differing opinions, as long as they're rooted in expertise, are fine. At this time, we want to serve the public by airing as many perspectives as possible to better our collective understanding of the case. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.